0: At Horse Chats today, we've got Jonna back, Jonna McLean. Now, remember Jonna talked about the evolution of the horse, and towards the end of it, he got to um, when horses and humans started to interact with each other. And he said he'd come back and talk to us about the evolution of the horse-human relationship. Now, this is quite a big subject. First of all, if you haven't already listened to the evolution of the horse, I think if you're going to, listen to that one just go to horsechats.com and just search for evolution or search for Jonna and you'll find that episode. Actually, I'll tell you what episode it is. I think it's number 804 was the previous one. So I think have a listen to that. This evolution of the horse-human relationship, Jonna tells me it's quite big. So we're going into part one. But before we get started on that, I just want to remind you about the vision for International Horse College and Horse Chats. And that's to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people. If that sounds like you and you've got the same vision as International Horse College and Horse Chats, go and have a look at the uh, website, internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Now, John, are you there? We're talking about the evolution of the horse-human relationship.
1: Yes, we are, Glennis. And as you have pointed out already, I'm not really sure how many episodes this will take, but I know that it'll be more than two.
0: Mm. You know, I really appreciate the research you're doing. You know, I think it's an interesting subject that you're going in, you're getting the research you're making sure that, that everything there is correct and informative and educational. And I think that's important. And I think that If we look at where we've come from, that means we're not going to make the same mistakes again with that relationship we have with our own horse.
1: That's exactly right, and I'm hoping that, and people like yourself and and myself included, we're hoping that we don't have to make the same mistakes twice as we um, progress through our um, educational journey in life because I'd like to think that as we gather more knowledge, then because we gather more knowledge, it means that then we have, possibly a greater uh, number of tools and a greater number of skills that we can then draw upon to be able to do what we need to do with horses, as you said, safely and ethically.
0: Yep, yeah, yeah. Now, Jonat, how long ago did the domestication of horses begin? We talked about the evolution. I just haven't got it on, on the top of my head. You know, we, we did talk about it in the previous episode, but just remind me how long ago that domestication began. <laughs>
1: Well, 20 years ago, we all thought it was about 3,000 years ago and then not long after that, they discovered that it was 4,000 years ago and now we've got conclusive evidence that in Kazakhstan, in the plains of the northern Kazakhstan, we've found um, evidence, physical evidence of farming horses 5,500 years ago at least. So that's a quite a long time.
0: That's absolutely amazing, yeah. Yep, yep. I was going to ask you where did it take place, but you said Kazakhstan.
1: Yeah, Kazakhstan, that's that's where they believe it, it, it occurred first and that's what the, all the records say, yes. But it's only recently that they've actually updated it by a 1,000 years. So although it's not a very long time geologically, it's a long time when you think about um, the human-horse relationship.
0: Yes. And what did we do with our horses then?
1: Well, you know, we talked about this last time is that we probably pursued horses to eat them and just treated them as a food source. And then as domestication came about, because they were able to offer us really valuable resources such as um, milk, and then obviously if the animal died or, or they were farming them, then we could use them for other things as well. But it was primarily um, being able to use their milk and milking them like, like cows, like we do today.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you say using them for farming, was that like driving them? Like, you know, is this this is not horses for harness work or when did we start using them for harness work?
1: Yes, well, this is actually not all that clear how long ago we started using them for, can I say, transportation or, or, or other things. But we, we know that up to around 1500 BC we had horses pulling chariots. So we know that. So, so we started having them pulling things. So maybe we were using them for farming and ploughing then. Um, that's certainly possible in um, cultivation because we had already started um, ourselves not being so nomadic and staying in the one place and farming. And I would have said that um, it would be pretty likely that horses probably helped till the ground because after all, they would have done this with cattle anyway and, and horses um, would have been an additional resource as well. So, yeah, that 1500 BC.
0: Did we use them in harness then before we were riding them?
1: Yes, we did. We used them in harness before we rode them. So, it means that when we started using them in harness, like pulling plows, it meant that we had an additional opportunity to be able to use them. For example, um, in battle, when, when there were regional wars going on, we could actually use them, you know, uh, animals could pull things like we do with machinery to be able to pull supplies and all the necessary goods. And that was around about 900 BC that warriors themselves, you know, they, we were able to see that we could use those in battle in a, in a chariot fashion, but it wasn't, we didn't really start riding them to around about 900 BC when that was the first recorded that we saw people riding them on horseback. But before we go into that, the interesting thing about the um, pulling capability of the horse is that a horse, although it's only maybe... And and the most common pulling horse that we know of and the most famous one is the Belgian draft horse. Now, that horse can pull up to 8,000 pounds, which in in modern language is 3.6 tonnes of weight. That's a colossal amount of pulling power And if we put two horses together, we can pull 14 and a half tonnes of weight. Now, I'm going ahead a little bit here, but that's why they were even used in the second war, because we were able to pull things like munitions and concrete. Those things obviously weigh a lot. So we could use horses uh, for pulling those uh, items into place as ways of being able to cart goods and services in a phenomenally... um, huge way, much greater than what a human can carry. So that's where it all came from and and then of course the harness itself became really an important part of development because it meant that if we could then develop things like collars and um, other harness equipment, we could spread the load across the horse so it could give us sustained periods of work without becoming sore, without it Producing sores on the horse, and that's how all the harness work, the the collars, etc., and traces, etc., were all developed from these days because they had to carry, uh, had to pull such huge loads for such long distances and for such great periods of time. And, and of course, you know, you and I both know we even used you know pig ponies down the mines to be able to um, gather resources out of the ground. So this pulling facet of horses has been a has been a huge Bonus for mankind and their development, and certainly, certainly um, technologically development technological development of um, of the gear for the horses to do that task
0: yeah yeah that's uh, amazing you know I look at the harness now i 'm sure it was a lot different back then, but um, it's amazing how how that started i'm just thinking about when we started riding horses, what were the implications you know like thinking and i 'm thinking sort of farming, driving chariots everything else you know using them in battle but when we started riding the horses what were the implications for that evolution of the horse human relationship how did that all come about
1: well it was first recorded around about 900 BC and when when warriors were first um, appeared on horseback and that we've seen that in scriptures and paintings etc and it was among the the first mounted archers and fighters uh, were the the Sintians. So that's a group of nomadic Asian warriors who often raided all the ancient Greeks. And that would have been absolutely terrifying for the opponents because they'd never, ever seen anybody on horseback before. So it would have been an overwhelming victory. And, um, of course, they were really uh, obviously keen to try and gain some of the ground that the Greeks had. So it would have been really, really um, terrifying to have, you know, volleys of arrows coming at you, With a man on a horse, that would have been just absolutely amazing. Up until then, it had all been done with chariots. So now something changed because now we're riding the horse and now we've got dexterity, mobility, speed and um, stamina. So we're able to do raiding, where it's really quite hard with a horse that's actually pulling a chariot to be quiet. But you can be very, very stealthy, very stealthy on a horse even a group of horses can be very, very stealthy. So this actually changed warfare considerably being being uh, on the horses rather than relying on them to uh, pull a cart or pull a sled.
0: Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available, and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry... 101 Careers in the Horse Industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. I'm just thinking the um to do with the war, you know, that, that the Cynthians they overtook the Greece, but the dressage movement and warfare, you know, I've heard that they came about because of this. You're saying that the dexterity, mobility, speed, stamina, hopefully I got all that right, but... Tell us about the dressage movements and the warfare.
1: Okay, so it means that what we needed to be able to do, for example, is that we needed the various types of horses because we needed, every time you have a heavy horse, you have a trade-off because he's not as fast, he's not as nimble. So we needed basically three types of horses. We needed a horse that was, you know, really thick-set, sturdy um, and could carry a lot of weight so we could have people that were um, carrying armour and you know, heavier protection for the horse and for themselves. And then we also had uh, lighter versions of that, which would have given us greater mobility, and then we would have had even more live versions of that again where we had uh, raiding parties going out and finding out exactly what was going on and where, and they had to be really, really stealthy, but they had to be really nimble and very fast, and so it's a trade-off um, how well you can manoeuvre your horse as to how much weight you're carrying on him and also what type of horse it is. So for close quarters battle, which is nearly um, everything that we do with with horses in terms of um, warfare, uh, certainly modern-day warfare, if I can use that in a loose term, in uh, recently modern times, uh, has relied upon being able to manoeuvre your horse in a particular way so that you are then able to not just travel frontwards, stop and reverse, but you can now do a variety of movements which involve going sideways in various ways. And the first one that we know of um, is, is like a legio, where we can actually get the horse to travel at 30 degrees to the right or to the left, so sideways, almost on a 45-degree angle, but not quite 30 degrees, so we can slide sideways. Now, the advantage of this is, remember that our soldiers or our warriors are carrying a sword, um, for the ones that aren't archers, um, but certainly close contact, as I said, is that they need to be able to defend themselves from enemy to the right, to the left, to the front, to the back, and also on an angle to the left and to the right as well. So that's where all the dressage manoeuvres came in, our um, being able to manoeuvre the shoulders independently of the hindquarter, which, as we know, is called shoulder-in, and then being able to move our hindquarters independently of the shoulder, call, we call that traverse. Put them both together, we can actually do half pass. And uh, you know, obviously, uh, uh, another version of that is really um, being uh, just being able to purely go sideways with a straight body, um, which is leg yield. So it gave us enormous um, uh, opportunity to defend ourselves and also to inflict damage because we're not just using our horse like a car, which can stop and go. Sideways and turn, et cetera, et cetera. But now we can go sideways. So the greater the education of the horse, or the more education we put into the horse's training, gave us a greater degree of mobility in close, close quarters battle, which is really, really important because you can't move a lot, because obviously there's a lot of lot of things happening around you. So everything that is close to you, you need to be able to get out swiftly and um, be able to have the horse performing very, very reliably under pressure. So it's a, it's a hugely interesting um, topic, yeah.
0: It is. It is. You know, you think about dressage now and where we are and how it's evolved. What about training the horses then? You know, how was the training done? Do we have any training scripts or anything from those early days? Or And if we do, who was it?
1: Okay, the, the best training script that we can think of, and unfortunately the records are a little bit few and far between, uh, as you probably realise, but there was a great cavalry officer, Xenophon, and he, he was the first person that we know of that had written an extensive, you know, um, uh, how to treat horses or, or horsemanship, as we've become to know it, and how to train the horses to be really, really effective. And he said, he sort of, Revolutionised, can I say, improvements in the in um, being able to manoeuvre the horse, and, and it was people like Xenophon in 360 BC that he was able to then um, add things. So he added a saddle and he added stirrups, um, and he also made inroads into the horse's uh, collar, which is for pulling as well. So you know he had a variety of. Uh, inputs that have been so valuable. Can you imagine where we would all be if we didn't have a saddle and stirrup to this day or what it would look like? So, you know, it's quite amazing. And see, that's where the saddle and the stirrup really gave us a huge advantage now because now as the horse became faster and started to go quicker for some of those other lighter horses that needed that extra degree of mobility and stealth uh, and endurance... It means that we could get up out of the saddle over the horse's wither and follow their centre of gravity more so it was more efficient for the horse so they could go further and they could, then the rider would then be able to, as they came back to walk, for example, have a little bit of a walk break, let the horse walk and they'd be back in the three-point position again. But then if they had to do a raid and had to swoop down on an enemy or had to swoop down on a particular area, they could get out of the get out of the saddle a little bit and follow the um follow the center of gravity which means that when you're traveling at speed it just improves the efficiency of the of the horses' movement and the effort from the rider as we all know imagine um, how it's like and i have galloped horses flat out absolutely flat out bareback and the horses that gallop very fast bareback go much much quicker when you're in a saddle and you're out and over the wither a little bit So really valuable what Xenophon did. And, yeah, uh, it's a really uh, fantastic uh, piece of history that
0: we've got. Wow, wow. I'm just looking, you know, going back over some dates, and correct me if I'm wrong, how long we've been using horses in warfare, and I'm sort of thinking the Scythians when they overtook the Greeks. The agriculture, I suppose, that goes back to 5,500. What about just general transport?
1: General transport, well, General transport has been all the way through. I mean, that would have been okay. one of the primary reasons, other than and milking the horse, using it for transport as, as soon as we were able to, can I say, get the horse to do things or almost independently of us, like driving them, um, then we would have been using them for transport straight away and, and, and hauling things and dragging things or ploughing as well as all the other benefits that a horse can give you.
0: Tell us a little bit about shoeing them. I think the history of shoeing horses and putting them on.
1: Okay. Well so shoeing shoeing horses meant that the interesting thing about shoeing horses is that we've been able to get our horses to be able to go further if you protect their feet. So it means that as we go as early on what we did is that we didn't use we didn't use metal shoes. We just used leather and anything that was really, really um, resilient to the horse's uh, wear of the foot. The, the point is you can really only travel maybe 15, 15, 20 miles in a day on a horse that's barefoot, but you can push it and you can double that with a horse that's shod. So it meant that all of a sudden that the range, having a horse that was now shod, means that you were able to get a horse to be able to travel much further because you weren't limited by the horse becoming sore now you were only limited by the endurance and the fitness of the horse rather than being limited by how quickly it actually got foot sore.
0: Yeah, okay, so it started off with leather and other things and then evolved to the metal.
1: Yes, and then evolved to the metal. And, and of course, metal, once we started understanding that we could use metal and being able to form it, then we also, also were able to quickly realise that the benefits of being able to have a shoe that was pretty much preformed for a horse, then all you had to do is then uh, take it to a, you know, a, a blacksmith and he would be able to just tailor, make that generalized shoe for your horse. And then we were able to put nails in the shoes and have them so that they were really secure but we were also able to add something else, and you'll see this. And I've got one. I'm actually looking at that shoe right now. Um, it's actually got cleats on it, and those the heels of the shoe have been turned down to give the horses better grip for going up hills and downhills because we don't want them to slip. And and we use these not just in the first two wars, but in all the wars preceding that. You know, we use them for grip. Whereas you can imagine trying to. A leather shoe onto a horse, it's not going to last that long, especially if you're on, you know, harder, harder roads. It's not going to last long at all. So, like for example, a horse can travel about a hundred miles in a day if he's fit, but a horse that isn't isn't shod won't go any anywhere as far as that. And that's why most of the towns in Europe and also to some degree in Australia that the how far apart the towns are is usually limited by how far a Cobb & Co coach can go for one day sustainably. So that's how it's worked out. But without shoes, that was never going to be possible. So we had to do something about that. Now, and you did ask me when this happened, and I'm actually quickly scrolling through all my information, and do you think I can find it? So I probably need to put that on the back burner and say, right, I'll get back to you about that because I did have it written down in the
0: front. We can also um, put that just on horsechats.com and uh, search for John and search for the evolution of the horse part one. But, yeah, we might come back to that as well. But before we finish, there's something else I wanted to ask, and that's just, you know, driving horses. So, you know, traditionally I suppose we've driven horses before we ride them, but is there a reason we still do it now?
1: Yeah, and the reason that we still do it now, from a traditional point of view, Glenys, is because nearly every horse that we had, and I'm only going back into a single generation, I can remember my, my mother and father talking about this, is that they would have a horse, and that horse would um, service the farm by um, maybe pulling a, pulling a mobile plow or whatever it was doing being helpful on the farm, but it was being driven primarily, and then in the same, the same horse would probably be taking the kids to school. So the horse had to be really multifunctional. So it meant that driving the horse was a primary source of, um, can I say, uh, assistance to families because it provided sustenance, becoming part of agriculture and being able to develop the land, etc. and then we were able to ride it as well. So from a breaking-in point of view, we've always known that if you actually get a horse and you can drive it and you can put the appropriate control mechanisms into place when you drive it, it gives you some guarantee of what it'll be like to ride. And generally, and I can say this for sanderbreds, horses that have never been ridden but only been driven, is that when they've been driven and they've been driven really well, that getting them used to having a rider on board and putting the buttons that are appropriate to riding now and driving, remember the go button for a driving horse is on his rump, and the buttons for a riding horse is actually behind the girth. So really the rest is history because he still turns left and he still turns right. We probably, for the standard bred horse, we have to just try and train a little bit of bend because they're usually stiff because they're between shafts, and because we don't want them bending, otherwise it will break the shafts. so we don't want that. So by tradition, that's what we've done. But now we don't use horses in those senses anymore. So there's no reason why we need to drive them first to break them in. And as I've said in my previous uh, episodes, you can actually just go straight to riding by putting the buttons in on the ground, much the same as what you did in driving, but in a much closer sense. So it's very interesting how the evolution of training and the evolution of breaking in a horse, to use a traditional term, or we now call it starting horses, but training a horse or training a, a naive horse to be ridden is now not necessary for you to drive it because no one drives horses now. When was the last time you and I saw a person going down the road in a jinker? I mean, the last time I saw that, I was actually driving jinker when I was at college. So that's a fair while ago.
0: Yes, yes, certainly not something that we commonly see these days. We see a lot more riding.
1: We do, we do. And yet, and it's that, really funny because I think there's a lot of people out there that don't realise how fun it is driving a horse. And we 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 had lots of fun training our horses to lead. We used to do off a break, so we would um, have one horse, and then we'd catch the younger horse to the older horse just on the outside of the shave and on the charves. and um, we would just take him for a little bit of a bit of a bit of a, a go up the road and back, and it didn't take long, and he'd be leading by the time you got there. He'd be fine, and it was a really wonderful way of doing it. There's many ways of doing it, yeah.
0: Yeah. John, well I think we've covered a fair bit. We've come from five thousand five hundred BC. Is that right? Five thousand five hundred yeah. BC right through to um, you know, the chariots, you know, the early yeah. farming, the battles, the Scythians and the Greeks, talked about Xenophon, we've talked about, you know, putting shoes on for the first time and war and dressage and warfare and we've talked about a lot, but I know there's a lot more to go. So I'm certainly looking forward to talking to you again about the evolution of the horse-human relationship part two. So we've covered part one tonight. We're covering part two. Now, just remind me that your Facebook page, it's trained to Win. Is that the best place for people to contact you?
1: Yes, I'm my Train to Win page. That's always probably the easiest way and the best way to be in contact with me. That's right, Clannis.
0: Yeah, yeah. So if people would like to know anything more about evolution or if you go back and listen to any of Johnna's other chats, you know, if you think, gee, Jonah's I'd really like to get some lessons, and I don't know how often he comes. He does travel a fair bit. So um, if you think that he's in the area or, or you are want to ask him when he's next in your area, contact him, and I'm sure you'll certainly enjoy the time you spend with him. Jonna, amazing again. I'm looking forward to catching up and I'm going through this part two with you. Thank you.
1: I look forward to it too. Thanks, Glennis, and thank you for all the questions. I appreciate that. That's good. <laughs> no worries, Jonna.
0: Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.